Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. This is Rabbi Yaakov Walby coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Today's Jewish History Podcast is sponsored by my dear friend Yidel Rifkind in honor of Kaylee Weiss on the occasion of her birthday. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know about our free giveaway, the Torch Shabbat Light Switch Covers. That's right. Your friends at Torch are giving away thousands of free Shabbat Light Switch Covers to friends, to listeners, to supporters, to our students, to the participants in our programs all over the world, and we're even covering shipping. Now, you may ask, what exactly is a Shabbat Light Switch Cover? So it's a piece of plastic that magnetically fastens and clicks on top of a light switch cover and covers it with the intention of preventing errant accidental flicking of the light on or off on Shabbat. And this is perfect for people who are Shabbat observant and want to ensure that they don't trigger any accidental discharges. You know, it happens to everyone. You wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, you leave the room and we're programmed an autopilot to turn on and off the light as we walk in and out of a room. This device covers the switch and it's going to prevent that for the duration of Shabbat. And even if someone has never observed Shabbat in their life, studies have shown that dedicating one light switch that will be covered for the duration of Shabbat will be a small step towards making Shabbat more meaningful. So if you want your free Shabbat light switch cover, we call it over here internally the mitzvah magnet. If you want it shipped to you for free, go to our website, torchweb.org. You'll see a banner on the homepage. Put in your information and we'll ship you up to five Torch about Light Switch Covers for free. There's no catch. You have nothing to lose. This is a free giveaway to our friends, people exactly like you. Check it out, torchweb.org. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. The destruction of European Jewry during the Holocaust decimated more than just the thousands of Jewish communities of Europe. Europe had been the epicenter of Ashkenazi Jewish life for a thousand years. And with the destruction of six million Jews came everything that generations of Jewish communities had built over the millennium. A world of Jewish infrastructure, shuls, synagogues, Jewish schools, mikvos, yeshivos, academies of Talmudic learning, giant Torah sages and their students, that whole world ceased to exist. If we were around to assess the state of the nation after World War II, it'd be very hard to construct an optimistic outlook. The nation was ravaged, its future bleak, its leaders gone, its youth decimated, their homes destroyed. Hope and positivity about the Jewish future would be considered justifiably foolish. But look at where we are right now. The Jewish communities reestablished themselves in the United States, in the newly founded state of Israel, and in some ways, certain parts of Jewish life, and particularly Torah life, are stronger than they were before the Holocaust. The pre-war Torah world was indeed destroyed, but a vibrant, dynamic, flourishing ecosystem of Torah has been established that in many ways is even more impressive than the one it replaced. It's always hard to appreciate history when you're living it. But I would argue that the rebirth of Torah after the Holocaust, a worldwide phenomenon, but one that's most pronounced in Israel, is one of the most stunning developments in all of Jewish history. An attitude, a culture, a Weltanschauung of Torah that was left for dead after the war, it underwent a renaissance 
and emerged larger and stronger than before. Prior to the Holocaust, there were maybe a couple thousand Torah scholars in the yeshiva world in Europe. Today, in the largest yeshiva in the world, the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem, a yeshiva, incidentally, that I'm a proud graduate of, there are nearly 10,000 full-time Torah scholar students. And that's only one of hundreds, maybe thousands of such institutions in the world. Robust Jewish communities with highly trained rabbinic leadership, with overflowing Torah day schools, anchored by kolels, which are advanced Torah institutions for exclusively married students, steeped in a culture of Torah, exist in many cities across the world and in every nook and cranny, every corner of Israel. The Torah communities are also rapidly growing demographically, and they wield increasingly greater political clout. If we can make a crude generalization, prior to the war, the Torah-centric world within Jewry was in long-term secular, pardon the pun, decline. And now it's an ascendant juggernaut. Where did this all come from? Who founded this world? Who resurrected the Jewish world after it was almost destroyed? Perhaps there are several answers to this question. But certainly in Israel, we can point to one man and declare with confidence that he spawned this revolution. And that is Rabbi Avraham Yishai Karelitz, universally known as the Chazonish after the eponymous title of his works. And he's going to be the subject of this Jewish history podcast and the one that follows. The Chazonish was a unique leader who was simultaneously the Torah giant of his generation. And a man of unmatched character, sensitivity, kindness, and a visionary Torah builder in the new state, and even someone that the Torah true political representatives of the state would lean on for guidance and advice. He was the founding father, the architect of the modern Israeli yeshiva world and much of that world's culture. And I want to add, before we begin, this story is not just about the past, It's very germane to understanding the modern Israeli world and culture and tension and division. Most of you, I'm sure, are aware that the government in Israel is currently amidst an unprecedented crisis. Of course, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, and a government can only be formed if you have a minimum of 61 out of 120 representatives of the Knesset. Now, Israel is about to head in in March into its third election within a year because neither of the previous two elections yielded a parliamentary majority for any natural coalition of parties. And one of the major sticking points that is causing this impasse is the question of religion and state. Israel has a system of mandatory conscription of all men and women. Incidentally, it's the only country in the world that has mandatory conscription of women. But ever since its founding, it has deferred the military service of all religious students who claim a, I guess, a conscientious objection or a religious exemption This is what's known as the status quo agreement, meaning we're going to keep things the way they are. The religious students can defer their army service until after they finish studying. And if they get old enough, then they could just, you know, they're beyond the point of when they could actually join the army. The religious parties in Israel, they're quite happy to continue with the status quo 
and they would never join a government that's going to challenge it. And several other large secular parties, they use the slogan of Shivayon Banetel, meaning equality and bearing the burden of the state. You know, they argue, why should our sons constrict? Why should they endanger themselves and yours not? And this is causing tremendous tension within the state. Another source of tension is the question of state funding of Torah institutions. These factors, of course, not the only things that are inhibiting a government from being formed, but they're certainly a major central point of contention. And with the changing demographics, these are likely to become even more important questions as time goes on. I think it's impossible to understand the quagmire of modern Israeli politics, specifically with respect to the deep tensions in matters of religion and state, in matters of the so-called status quo, without understanding the genesis of the Israeli yeshiva and Torah world and culture and mindset. The founding father of that world, the founding father of that philosophical worldview, is the Chazanish and the subject of today's podcast. We could divide his life into almost two opposite storylines. For 50 years, the Chazon Ish toiled in Torah in Europe in near total obscurity. His greatness, his scholarship, was only known to a small select cadre of contemporaries. That we're going to cover hopefully in today's episode. For the last two decades of his life, he moved to British Mandate Palestine, and he launched a one-man revolution of Torah in the new Yeshuv, in the settlement of Jews in Israel, in what became Israel. And please, God, we're going to cover that in the next episode of the Jewish History Podcast. I want to add before we begin that I have several personal familial connections with Rabbi Karelitz, with the Chazon Ish. When my grandfather of blessed memory, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, arrived to Israel in 1946, he became extremely close to the Chazanish, and in fact, it was the Chazanish who encouraged him to found his yeshiva in the Tel Aviv suburb of Be'er Yaakov. In addition, when my father, he should live and be well, when he was born in 1953, my grandfather traveled to the Chazanish and asked him to serve as the Sandek for the Bris, which if you don't know what it is, it's analogous, I would say, to uh, to a godfather. It's the person who holds the child during the circumcision ceremony. And it's believed that whoever holds the child during the bris, that person is going to have a positive influence on that child, which is why it's the custom to seek out a righteous person to serve as the sandek. After my father was born, my grandfather traveled to Bnei Brak, asked the Chazonish to travel to Baryaka for the bris, which he did. And less than two weeks later, the Chazonish passed away. A half a century later, my grandfather quipped that the reason why my siblings and I turned out okay, maybe that's a subjective question, was all in the merit of the Chazonish who served as our father's sandik. Okay, so with that, let us begin. Avram Yishai Kareletz was born in 1878 in the Belarusian town of Kosovo, the town in which his father served as rabbi. His mother had suffered from some sort of illness. She was advised by the local physicians that she'll never bear children. And in fact, his father was told, because your wife is medically infertile, this would be sufficient halakhic grounds to seek a divorce. Because after all, no one marries a woman with the intention of not being able to have children with her. 
But she did not heed the doctor's orders, and she ended up not with one child, but with nine children, four sons and five daughters, all of whom would grow up to become either giant Torah scholars or wives of giant Torah scholars. The absolute standout of her children is her second son, Avraham Yeshaya, who would eventually be known universally as the Chazon Ish. And the legend has it that she prayed for a child, but she told God, you know what? I'm praying for a miracle. Once I'm asking for a miracle, let that child be an absolute superstar. And clearly, her prayers were answered. At a very young age, Avram Yishai displayed superlative diligence in Torah study. It's interesting to note that there are disputes regarding his raw intellectual and cognitive capabilities. You know, of course, there's some Torah giants who were clearly endowed with genius-level intellect, and that, coupled with great diligence, is invariably going to lead to Torah greatness. Regarding the Chazonish, there is an unanswered question regarding his natural cognitive ability. Some have argued that his tremendous Torah greatness was solely a product of his assiduous diligence, and not at all due to great natural abilities, and we would argue that's even a greater accomplishment. But others say, no, he did have tremendous intellect. It's a, it's a matter of dispute. At the age of 13, he made a decision to study Torah his whole life, lishma, meaning for its own sake, not for honor, not for stature, not to get a position as a rabbi or as a head of yeshiva, solely to study the Almighty's Torah. And save for a brief period when he had to accept an official rabbinic post, he shied away from any official post of leadership and held his commitment to study Torah lishma for its own sake alone. Although he did spend some time in various yeshivos, most of his study was done by himself and with study partners. A contemporary gave a description of how they would study as youths. At the age of 16 or so, Chazanish would study with a study partner, and they would study Talmud for six hours straight, and whenever they would get into a portion of the Talmud that was too difficult, they didn't understand it, each one of them would pull out a book of Psalms and pray and beseech God to be given the insight, to be given the clarity in that given text, and then they would resume their study. And we'll see that a large part of the Chazorish's persona, of course, was his Torah genius and his Torah greatness, but also his superlative prayer. Another aspect of his life that was evident throughout his life was his asceticism. In fact, he had only one hat and one jacket that he wore his entire life. He wore them at his wedding and he wore them the day of his passing. In a letter, he writes that he was always fragile, he was always sickly, he was always weak, and that he never enjoyed his physical life. In fact, in his letters that became a basic text of the Israeli Torah world, he writes how indulging in physical pleasures are injurious to one's growth in Torah. This is a quote. You should be careful, very, very careful, from enjoying pleasuresome, indulgent food. And then he adds, just as in the laws of purity in the Torah, there are gradients of impurity. There's something which is one level of impurity, there is a higher level of impurity, and then there is the aviavos, the granddaddy of all impurity. Similarly, with respect to the soul, 
there are indulgences, there are temptations and pleasures that are harmful to you and there's different levels and the highest level is when someone is obsessive over indulgent foods and that is something which is going to inhibit their ability to study to study Torah and study Talmud successfully. And I think for us, it's very hard for us to identify with this teaching, but as someone who has spent many years in the Israeli yeshiva world and in its culture, this kind of attitude, this kind of dedication and asceticism has permeated entire culture and has spawned legions of giant Torah scholars, but also ones that are living within a certain frugal and very modest lifestyle of total dedication to Torah. The Chazanish's apartment was bare. It was bereft of any furnishings. All he had was a bed, simple table, a couple of chairs, and a few bookshelves of Torah study. And he was also someone who would push himself to the absolute limit of his abilities. He would always study Torah continuously, without stop, for hours. I remember seeing a letter published from the Chazonish hanging in a yeshiva in Israel where he wrote about how when you start studying, it's very difficult because the joy, the pleasure, the delight of studying Torah is only unlocked after four, five, six, ten, twelve hours of continuous, uninterrupted studying. There's a legend that they found the Chazonish sleeping half on his bed, half on his floor. And they asked him, why are you sleeping in this uh, uncomfortable way? And he responded that when he would study, he would study to the nth of his strength, and then he would collapse into bed. But he would always calculate how much strength he has left to be able to make it to his bed. This time, he miscalculated by a few seconds, so he, he fell asleep as he was about to get into his bed. As a result of his superhuman investment into his study, Avram Yishai became a fabulous Torah scholar. He would consume books of Talmud. In fact, his father wrote a book on the tractate of Talmud called Chulin, and in honor of his father's yard site, he would finish the entire tractate of Chulin every year on that day. Of course, for us to finish a book of Talmud, it's a gargantuan achievement. To do it in a day is unthinkable. He would do it every year on the day of his father's yard site. They used to say about him that he could study 100 pages of Talmud in a day, but he could also study one page of Talmud for a hundred days straight. He had complete mastery of Torah. In length, in breadth, in depth, he achieved total command of all areas of Torah, total clarity in every aspect, in every subject, in every discipline in Torah. And even years after he studied something, it was still as lucid and as clear to him as the day that he studied it. I had an encounter with a giant Torah scholar of this ilk, and I was talking to him about a given teaching in the Talmud, and he told me he has not studied it in 35 years, and then he proceeded to quote me the text of Rashi's commentary verbatim. The people who really dedicate themselves to Torah study, even years after they've studied a given text, a given portion, they recall it, they retain it perfectly. With his total immersion into Torah, the Chazon Ish developed 
almost like a chemical dependency on Torah study. He had an unbridled love of learning. He once told a student that the most difficult part of Tishabov, Tishabov is a day that we mark the destruction of the temples, and it's a day that we fast for 25 hours. But a component of that is that we don't study Torah because Torah, Torah brings us to joy and we want to avoid joy in that day. The Chazanish said that it's harder for him to not study Torah than it is for him to not eat or drink for 25 hours. In 1906, he married and together with his wife, they moved to the city of Kedan. His wife opened a textile store through which they were sustained and occasionally the Chazanush would assist his wife in running the store during busy season. Sadly, the Chazanush and his wife would not be blessed with children, but we can say without platitudes and cliches that anyone who was fortunate enough to study in a modern yeshiva is indeed a child of the Chazonish. In 1911, at the age of 33, he published his first work, Chazonish, on various sections of halacha. His books were written anonymously, but in the title he hinted at his name, and that's of course the tradition in the title of a Torah book, you hint the name of the author. The word chazon means vision. The word ish means man, the vision of man. But it's also an acronym of his name. Ish is Avram Yeshaya. All told, the chazon ish published 24 volumes of his eponymous work, covering every corner of the Talmud and of Halacha. His books were not initially popular. For one, they were written anonymously, and he was a relative unknown at the time. But also, they could only be enjoyed by the most advanced scholars who had already been exposed to the depths of the subject matter. Moreover, his writing style was intricate, and his approach to the Talmud and to Halacha were somewhat of a departure from the prevailing norm. When asked why he published his books, after all, few people could or even would enjoy them, he responded that he had a hard time reading his own handwritten notes, so he published them in a book form. doesn't make sense to publish just one, so he published many. In addition to his magnum opus work, Chazon Ish, 24 volumes, he also wrote thousands of letters of encouragement and guidance, and they were collected into a three-volume Igros Chazon Ish, meaning the letters of the Chazon Ish, and finally, towards the end of his life, he began writing on the subjects of Imuna and Bitachon, faith and reliance on God, and the unfinished manuscript was published posthumously. During World War I, the Chazonish and his wife, they had to flee, along with many other refugees, from German-conquered land to Russian land, and they ended up in the city of Stvivitz, where his wife opened a new store, and he continued studying unabated. Again, he refused to take any official role, but he did serve as the interim rabbi for a period of about a year. Some say it was for government purposes. He wanted to avoid being drafted during World War I. Others argue it was because the permanent rabbi had taken a temporary leave of absence. But regardless, he maintained his role as someone who's just studying and has no public persona. There were two Notable exceptions when the Chazonish mobilized his prodigious strengths and powers to help the community. Once there was a fire that burned much of the city and the Chazonish worked to get the mikvah back in order. And a second time, there was a plague. 
some sort of virus, some sort of illness that struck the city. And because people were contagious, the Hebra Kadisha, the burial society, they neglected burying the dead in fear of contamination. So the Chazonish himself began to try to bury all the dead. In fact, in one story, he took one of the deceased, put him on his shoulders, and carried him to the cemetery. And this inspired the people of the Hebra Kadisha to go to get back to their jobs. People asked him, aren't you afraid of catching the disease and getting sick yourself? He responded, I am afraid, but I'm even more afraid of not burying the dead. These few stories foreshadowed the unprecedented activism and leadership that he would exhibit once he arrived in Israel and immersed himself in public affairs. At some point during the late 1910s, the Chazon Ish moved to Minsk. His wife remained in Stvivitz, joining him each Shabbos. During those years, he remained in his house and studied Torah day and night without interruption. He wouldn't even leave his home to go to shul for prayers, with the exception of Shabbos and Mondays and Thursdays when the Torah is read. He was not yet a famous leader. He was not yet encumbered by droves of visitors and petitioners. He did not have the other responsibilities of leadership, and he could study and write his books without any concerns. There's one remarkable story from this period that we have to convey. During World War I, the Chazonish once found himself surrounded by soldiers, and he didn't have his papers with him. And if they would catch someone who didn't have the correct papers, the result would be an immediate execution. And he just walked right by them all, and miraculously, no one stopped him, no one questioned him, no one investigated him, no one bothered him. And later on, he would say that the reason why he was saved, it's because of the toil that he invested in studying and writing on the laws of Erevin and the book of Chazanish on Erevin that he had just completed. In 1920, after World War I ended in 1918, the Chazon Ish moved to Vilna in the heartland of the Lithuanian yeshiva world. He was a naturally private person. And he shied away from any public persona. And again, he refused to take the leadership role. He refused to render halachic decisions to the masses. And in Vilna, he continued to study in obscurity, known only to a small group of scholars. But he did become very close to the Gadol Adar, to the leader of the generation, Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grzynski. Vilna would be his home for the next 13 years. His wife and him rented a small two-room house. One room was their living area. One room, his wife maintained a small textile store for their income. In Vilna, he published more volumes of the Chazon Ish, and he continued his study again, essentially by himself. Now, in addition to his superlative Torah study and diligence, his prayer was equally legendary. And because his prayer was invariably efficacious, he was considered a miracle worker. Time and time again, when he would pray for something, what happened? In one of his letters, he wrote that he's dealing with a certain problem, and I'm toiling in prayer to rescind the decree. And there's many, many stories of miracles that he brought about via his prayer. So a quick sampling of some of these stories. 
there was a close confidant of the Chazonish who had a child that was born with a terrible disease and was at risk of of dying. And without any other solution available to them, this person ran to the Chazonish in the middle of the night because he wanted to get his advice, he wanted to get his prayer to solve this dilemma that, that the child is dealing with a life-threatening situation. And he reasoned, even if the Chazonish is sleeping, I'm going to wake him up so he can give me advice. And he gets to the home of the Chazanish because he was a close confidant. He had the keys. He was able to get in. And he finds that the Chazanish is praying as if he's praying the Shemona Esra, as if he's praying the Amidah prayer. But he's saying the blessing of Asher Yatsar, which is the blessing that we say after we go to the bathroom. And when the Chazanish finished his blessing... And the, the words, the final words of the blessing are, God heals all flesh and does wonders. This father of the stricken child screamed, Amen, Amen. And of course, the Chazanish didn't pay attention to, that there was someone else in the room. He turns around to find out what's going on. And he asks him, well, what are you doing over here? So he responds, well, what the, what the situation is of his child. His child's in mortal Danger. Chazanish said to him, what are you talking about? Why are you speaking nonsense? Go home. Your child is doing very, very well. He says to him, no, no, I was just there. And I'm terrified that my child's going to die. Chazanish said to him, no, you're speaking words of nonsense. After all, I said the blessing that God heals all flesh and does wonders. And you answered, amen. I am sure if you go home, that you'll find that your child is okay. Indeed, he went home and he found that the child was once again restored to health and long, robust life. There's another story, a very similar story, of a man whose wife had a baby and there was some complication in the birth and the doctors advise him you need immediate surgery or else the woman's life is threatened. It's a case of pituach nefesh. It's a case of life and death. You right away have to have the surgery and you should hire the best surgeon in town. He's very expensive, but he may save your wife's life. So he runs to this physician. He runs to the surgeon, pays him the money. And as the surgeon tells him, well, you should know that this operation will save your wife's life but it will make her infertile for the rest of her life. So he figures, you know what? I'm going to run to the Chazonish to find out whether I should do this surgery or not. So he runs to the Chazonish, and the Chazonish was about to start the Mincha prayer, and he tells him everything that's happening. Should I do the surgery or not? So the Chazonish tells him, I don't get it. You said it's a matter of pituach nefesh. You said it's a matter of life and death. What's the question? If it's a case of life and death, you have to do the surgery. Okay, that seems pretty clear, cut, and dried. But then the Chazanish said to him, we're about to start praying mincha, the afternoon prayer. Did you pray yet? So he said, no. He says, okay, why don't you come join us in the prayer? So he joined the Chazanish for the prayer of mincha. And afterwards... The Chazanish told him, you know what? I changed my mind. Go home and don't do the surgery. So the person said to him, I don't get it. A few minutes ago, you told me it's a case of life and death. For sure, you should listen to the doctors and do the surgery. And now you're changing your tune. Now you're saying not not to do the surgery. So the Chazanish responded, yes, beforehand, it was prior to prayer. Now 
It is after prayer. I'm sure things are going to be okay. He ran back to the hospital and he told the doctors, I'm not doing the surgery. And they said to him, you're crazy. It's a case of life and death. He said to him, I'm listening to the ruling of the Chazanish. I am not changing my mind and we're not going to go ahead with the surgery. The doctors looked at him like he was mad, like he was suicidal, but they had to listen to him. The rabbi, after all, said not to go with the surgery. And indeed, what happened was she had a turnaround and her condition improved and she lived many long years and she even had nine more sons and daughters after this episode. And the final punchline of this story is that this person even managed to get back the money that he had made as a down payment from the surgeon. There's another story that they say, and this is a sampling again of many stories. When the Chazanish arrived to Israel, there were people who were there waiting for him and helping him in his transition from Vilna to, to Israel. There was one person in particular who was taking care of all the arrangements. And after the Chazanish had settled down, he asked him, he says, you, you were so kind with me. I want to repay you. How can I repay you? So the person who helped Chazanish responded, I'd rather that you remain indebted to me. That's what he said. And Chazanish didn't respond. Many years later, this person who had helped the Chazanish, he became dangerously ill. And the doctors had no solution for him. And he told his family, bring me a piece of paper. And with his last bit of energy, he wrote on a piece of paper, go to the Chazanish, tell him that I'm ill, give him my name, give him my mother's name, and he's going to pray for me. Chazanish received the letter. He got so excited. He's finally going to be able to pay the debt. He stood up. He prayed immediately for the person's recovery. And to the astonishment of all, the person recovered from his illness and lived for a long time after that. There's also a mind-blowing story that I read about his prayer and how he resolved a potential conflict. There was a non-Jewish businessman who had done some business with his wife, Chazanish's wife, and her textile store, and he concocted a story that she stole from him. And he sued her in court, and it would have been a disaster had this court case gone to trial. So the Chazonish asked for the name of that particular non-Jewish businessman, and he prayed for the salvation of God, and out of the blue, that individual who had launched this unfair and untrue complaint against his wife died, and the court case was annulled. The general idea that we say about this is that God is close to those who call out to him. The more righteous someone is, the more readily and immediately God accepts their prayer. The Chazanish was someone who lived with superlative faith, superlative reliance on God, and it was well known that when he prayed intensely for someone or something, invariably it happened. In addition, the Chazanish was a man of sterling character and sensitivity. He always had a pleasant countenance. He always had a positive and even cheerful demeanor. Someone once asked him, he was dealing with something that was a very tragic and sad story, yet his face 
was positive. His outlook, his demeanor was upbeat and energetic. And they said to him, is this appropriate to be so positive, to always have this pleasant countenance, even in times like this? And he responded, the Talmud tells us that a prophet can only have prophecy if they're happy, if they're upbeat. And then we see the prophet Jeremiah, who writes the book of Lamentations, the saddest book of Jewish scripture, all about the mourning and the crying and the bewailing, the destruction of Jerusalem. Yet he had prophecy when he wrote it, and thus it's evidence that he was joyous even in times of general sadness. It's another wonderful story when he had moved right to Israel. So it was the custom that yeshiva students from all over the country, but specifically from the city of Bnei Brak, where the Chazanish lived, it was custom that they would come and discuss matters of Torah and Talmud with the Chazonish. So there was a student in the Panovich Yeshiva, which was located in Bnei Brak, next to the Chazanish. He was studying two different tractates of Talmud, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And he encountered something in one of the Tosfos commentaries of the Talmud he was studying in the afternoon, something which clearly contradicted what he had studied in the morning. And he had no resolution to this question. So he came to the Chazanish and he asked him this question. So the Chazanish began to pace the room with his young student and they were mulling over this question together. And the Chazanish asked him, well, if that Tosfos comment was phrased slightly differently. Would there still be a question? So the student said, yeah, but it doesn't say it like that. So you can't resolve the question. So the Chazanish continued, but if you just change these two words, and it's it's worded slightly differently, would it be okay? Would the question still exist? Yeah, there wouldn't be a question, but it doesn't say it like that. So after having this back and forth, the student said to him, you know what? Can I go to your bookshelf? Can I actually look at the text of the two sources that are contradicting each other? So suddenly the Chazanish says, uh, you have to go. I'm so, so tired. And he went to lay down in his room. The student went back to the yeshiva disheartened. He had a question and he didn't get an answer. And he was also a little bit sad about the fragility of the great sage. To his surprise, the next time he looked at that text, it turns out that he had misread it. The Chazanish was right. The text was slightly different than he had thought, and therefore there was no question. But the Chazanish concocted the story that he was tired. It was not from fatigue, but he wanted to avoid shaming the young student. And I think it shows, on one hand, the tremendous genius that he knew everything. He knew all the Torah, but he also knew how to avoid shaming the young student. I read another really nice story about the Chazanish that shows his sensitivity. After he had come to Israel, he became the undisputed, authoritative Torah leader in the land. And every day people would come to him with questions. And everywhere he went, he was always surrounded by people asking for advice. People asked him to pray for them. So he was once by a bris. And after he had finished the bris, he had spoke and he advised and he guided a bunch of people. They were all waiting for him for him to address them and to address their problems. After he finally finished speaking and advising and guiding all the people, he gets into his car and he tells the driver, drive very slowly when you leave. Why? I don't want these people to think or to get the feeling that we're 
finally delighted to escape them. And this, these are some of the stories of the care and the patience and the pleasantness of the Chazonish and the kindness of, of his sensitive soul for all those that he encountered. Another component of his persona was his legendary fastidiousness in matters of halacha. He would say, quite simply, the Almighty gives us Torah, and the Almighty is directing us how to connect to him, how to act in the proper fashion. And he would go to great lengths to fulfill every mitzvah, every commandment in the Torah, with every jot and tittle, crossing every T, dotting every I, doing everything to the best of his ability to fulfill everything as best as feasibly possible. One of the famous examples of that is that he would go to great lengths to ensure that the esrod, the citron fruit that we shake on the festival of Sukkot, it was not grafted. In fact, today, many of the esrogim around the world are touted as the chazon-ish esrogim, the etrods of the chazon-ish, because he invested all the effort to make sure to find the right breed of unadulterated, ungrafted citron fruits. There was one year in the middle of World War I that before the festival, he traveled to a distant city to try to find a kosher esrog. But due to the war and due to the complications, he ended up remaining away from his family, remaining away from his home for the duration of the festival. There's also the idea of the shi'ur, meaning the measurements. So when you do a mitzvah, you drink, let's say, on Friday night, you make kiddush, you have wine. Well, how much wine do you have? So there's different measurements. The shi'ur chazanish, the measurement of the chazanish is always the most. Always making sure that you cover every potential component and every potential aspect of the mitzah. Matzah. You're supposed to eat matzah on Passover. Well, how much matzah do you have to eat? You have to eat a certain amount of matzah within a certain amount of time. The chazonish always favored the most stringent fulfillment, the most amount of matzah in the shortest amount of time to fulfill that mitzvah. And this was not only isolated to him, and we'll see more about this in the next episode. This kind of attitude, this kind of worldview, this perspective of trying to do everything that we can to the best of our abilities really permeated the culture that he built in the land of Israel, the culture of total dedication to Torah and to fulfillment of the mitzvos. Chazanish was also a true Renaissance man. Beyond his total encyclopedic knowledge of every area of Torah, the Chazanish was an expert in the sciences, mathematics, even botany, anatomy, astronomy, pathology. He knew medicine better than the best doctors. Of course, he was not classically trained in these areas. He was an autodidact, but I would argue that we could describe him not as an autodidact, but as a Torah didact. There are many areas of Torah that relate to other disciplines, such as math for the laws of Erevin, astronomy, and the laws governing the calendar, anatomy and medicine in many areas of halacha. And without knowledge of those disciplines, understanding the corresponding Torah sections would be impossible. The Chazanish was a Torah didact because he extracted from the Torah, from the Talmud, from all the sources, all the other wisdoms and disciplines. And his mastery over the other disciplines 
that appear not only in his writings and halachic rulings. If you open up his books, you'll see a lot of diagrams, a lot of sketches that he made in complicated Torah subjects. But he was also consulted by experts for his renowned expertise. And that was most pronounced when he was consulted by patients and by surgeons for his expertise in pathology and in medicine and in anatomy. There was one story that demonstrated his knowledge of the constellations and of astronomy. The Chazanish would always wait after Shabbos, before he did any work, before he did anything that was prohibited on Shabbos, he would wait 72 minutes after nightfall to not do anything that was prohibited. And that's, of course, the longest amount of time and the Chazanish was always renowned for doing things as best as possibly could be done. But there was one exception when he would end Shabbos a little bit earlier than he usually did, and that was the Shabbos of Hanukkah. We know for the eight days of Hanukkah, we have to light the menorah. And when Saturday night happens, when Shabbos ends, you have to immediately light the Hanukkah candles pronto right after Shabbos. And in that instance, he would follow the guidelines of the Talmud. You wait for three medium-sized stars. Once you see those three stars, then you could already do Havdalah and end Shabbos and light your Hanukkah candles. So it was once the night of, of Hanukkah. And he sends his students out, go find the three medium stars and told them exactly where in the horizon, where in the sky you'll find those three stars. He told them exactly where they start to look at to find those stars. He also had, as we mentioned, encyclopedic knowledge of anatomy and pathology and medicine. He would guide surgeons how to make incisions in thorny cases where they didn't exactly know how to get to the problematic area to make their surgery. There is still an extant sketch of a heart and all its pathways that he had made for a heart surgeon to aid him to get towards the problematic area that needed surgery. He also sketched out brains and ways to make the incisions leading to successful brain surgeries. I also read an amazing story with Rabbi Beryl Pavarsky, who today is currently one of the greatest rabbis in Israel. When he was a child in 1948, he lived in Bnei Brak. His father was one of the heads of the yeshiva in Panovich. And it was the day before Rosh Hashanah. He had a pus-filled wound under his lips. And he was suffering. He was in tremendous pain. Young child. He had a high fever. And the local doctor had left the city for Rosh Hashanah. I guess he was visiting family. He, he was elsewhere. So his parents took him to a different doctor, a, a pediatrician. And he'd gotten some treatment from this pediatrician. The night of Rosh Hashanah, the pain intensified, and his father told him, don't leave the house, lay down in bed, relax. And he was he was sick, but it wasn't considered anything that dangerous. On the night of Rosh Hashanah, one of his friends went to the Chazonish and told him that this young child, this young Beryl, is not feeling well. And the following day, at three in the afternoon, who shows up to visit them? They get a knock at the door, and the Chazanish, the leader of the Torah world, is coming to visit this small child who is unwell. And he comes in and he announces, I came to visit the sick, but I also want to look at the wound. 
And because he was someone who had very poor vision, he had to look really, really closely to see the wound exactly. And he looks at the wound and he says, did you take this child to a doctor? And they said, yes, we took him to this pediatrician. He says, no, no, that's not a real doctor. You have to go to a real doctor. And he says, even though today is Rosh Hashanah, tonight, which is the second night of Rosh Hashanah, and that's only a rabbinic holiday because we don't know exactly when Rosh Hashanah is, and therefore we keep two days. Tonight, even though it's still the festival, I want you to take a taxi and travel to Tel Aviv and to go to this and this doctor. Okay, so they follow the ruling of the Chazonish, the father, and the young son, Beryl, and his friend. They get into the cab and they go to Tel Aviv and they go to this and this doctor. They visit him and he asks them, who who sent you here? And they say to him, the Chazonish sent us. And he responded, this child has 12 hours to live. He must have had a terrible infection that had spread out throughout his body. However, says the doctor, there's a special shot, a new innovation that had been developed. He gives him the shot. He tells him to come back in six hours. They stayed for the last day of Roshana in one of their acquaintances in that neighborhood. And thank God he was totally healed. And again, this is a person who's still alive today. He should live and be well and one of the greatest rabbis in the land. And he says that he is alive because of the Chazanish's intervention and his medical knowledge and his guidance. One more story that relates to the Chazanish's mastery over the most complicated areas of halacha, of Jewish law, and of other disciplines, in this case is geography, is his adjudication of the international dateline dilemma. During the war years, there were many Jews who had fled to the Far East, and many found themselves in Japan and in Japan-occupied China for large parts of the war. Of course, living under Japanese rule at the time when Japan was at war with the Allies created all sorts of problems. There were frequent bombings, and there was a problem of communication. Because the United States was at war with Japan, there was no postal relations between those two countries, And the benefactors of the Jewish refugees in Japan, in the United States, they couldn't send their aid to those who needed it in Japan. But one unusual dilemma was the question of the international dateline. And the easiest way to explain this, you know, if you were following the sun, directly under the sun, wherever you're going, it's 12 o'clock noon. But if you follow the sun in rotation around the earth, when the Sunday noon turned into Monday noon. There has to be some point under the sun, so to speak, where the dateline happens where one day turns into the next day. And that, of course, leads to important questions. When is Shabbos? When does Friday turn into Saturday? When is Yom Kippur? And there are major disputes amongst the halakha authorities on this question. Some held that the international dateline was east of Japan, And thus, Japan had Sunday morning several hours before Jerusalem did. Others, the Chazanish included, maintained that the international dateline was west of Japan, and therefore Sunday morning in Japan happened 18 hours after Sunday morning in Jerusalem. Ergo, Shabbos was really on Sunday. And even though we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos in Japan, you would wear it on Saturday, because Saturday is halakhically Friday. This doesn't really cause a major problem throughout the year. It's possible for someone to keep Shabbos for two days, Saturday and Sunday, to not do any Shabbos transgressions just to be safe. 
but what to do on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, you need to fast, to not eat and not drink for the whole day. And it would be totally impractical and, of course, dangerous to not decide which day to favor. So Yom Kippur of 1941 posed a major dilemma for the Jews situated in Japan. Most of the rabbis argued to observe the fast day on Wednesday and not Thursday. But the Chazanish was of the opinion that Wednesday was the day before Yom Kippur, the day when eating is encouraged, and Thursday was Yom Kippur, the most sacred day of the Jewish calendar, the day of fasting. The Chazanish was initially uneasy in rendering a decisive halachic ruling, but ultimately he sent an urgent telegram on Tuesday, the day before Yom Kippur, everywhere else, with the following words, Eat on Wednesday, fast on Thursday, and don't worry about it all. And that's what they did. There are apparently some legends of people who actually fasted for 48 hours straight, but most relied on the Chazanish to eat on Wednesday, the day before Yom Kippur, and to fast on Thursday. Notwithstanding the fact that the Chazanish did not take a strong leadership role in Vilna, he was coached, he was nudged into leadership by the other Torah giants of the generation. Once the Chafetz Chaim, one of the great leaders of the Jewish people in the early parts of the 20th century, he came to Vilna and he visited the home of Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grzynski, who was the God Ladar, was the giant of the generation. And they had a bunch of other people who were there. And the Chafetz Chaim was speaking on the situation of the generation. And he said, this is not the time for humility. This is a time where the people that are destined to lead the nation, they stand up and they take their role, even if it's against their nature and even if it's something they want to avoid. And after they finished, Reb Chaim he turned to the Chazanish and said, you know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about you. And from that point forward, the Chazanish was involved in public matters, albeit still in a behind-the-scenes way, helping in ways that he could, but not in the front lines. That would radically change when the Chazanish moved to British Mandate Palestine in 1933. Now, if Jewish history has taught us anything, it's that the Almighty always positions the nation to have the right leaders and to be set up ahead of time to be able to navigate through challenging times. The Talmud already tells us that when the first temple was destroyed, when the first commonwealth ended, it happened in two stages. First, there were 10,000 of the best and brightest and most talented Jews in the land of Judah, in Israel. They were initially sent in exile to Babylon. And a decade later, the rest of the nation underwent this expulsion and were sent to Babylon. Talmud tells us that this was a great kindness and charity that the Almighty did for his people even though it would appear to be a catastrophe. Think about it. A nation is losing its leaders. The truth is, it guaranteed that 10 years later, when the masses arrived in Babylon, they were greeted with the Torah and religious infrastructure that was built by their brethren who had preceded them. I think it's clear to us, looking back in history, something very similar happened in the years preceding the Holocaust. In 1933, 
the previously almost entirely unknown Chazon Ish, picked up, left Vilna, left the heartland of the Torah world, and moved to the spiritual wasteland of British Mandate Palestine of Israel. And here the explicit goal, this is going to be a great Torah community, a great Torah world, and I'm coming to build Torah in this spiritual desert. In retrospect, we can say that his mission was monumentally successful. We will learn about his work and his activism and Torah building Israel in the next episode of the Jewish History Podcast, Please God. My email address is rabbiwalby.com. Of course, I encourage everyone to check out my other podcast. The Jewish History Podcast is one of six podcasts that I have the fortune to host. The Parsha Podcast, every week we try to do two Parsha Podcasts. Eternal Ethics is a podcast on Perky Avos, the Mitzvah Podcast that gives an overview, a snapshot of all the mitzvahs of the Torah. This Jewish Life, the podcast that deals with matters of critical philosophy of Jewish living, and finally, Torah 101, and intellectuals' introduction to Torah. If you're interested in understanding the framework, the architecture, the building blocks, the foundations of Torah, that is for you. Again, go to our website, torchweb.org, get your free mitzvah magnets, get your free torch, Shabbat Lights covers on the homepage. There's a banner, we'll ship it to you for free. Until next time, shalom from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Jewish History Podcast, and my name is Rabbi Yaakov Walby.